Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 as we continue during this season of Advent to look to Matthew's gospel at the coming of King Jesus. And as you turn there, I just want to mention one more time, uh, we have our Bloomfield Baptist Church cookbooks. Uh, those are for sale in the lobby just outside this door. So if you've waited to the last minute to buy something for Christmas, uh, we can help you out today. Uh, I would challenge you to find another Baptist cookbook where the first recipe is for beer cheese. And so, uh, this will be a collector's item. So, uh, we do invite you next time we do a cookbook to give an appetizer starting with artichoke or anchovy or something like that, and you can be first, but get your beer cheese cookbook today. Uh, Those are $20. So, uh, if you're now in Matthew 2, uh, we are going to continue in this Advent series. We've been looking at... Uh, different responses to the birth of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we started out a few weeks ago looking at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel and and that genealogy of Jesus and how we see that picture of God's faithfulness uh, in contrast to man's lack of faith and yet we see that sovereign hand of God at work. Uh, We looked at Joseph's response to the birth of Jesus. We looked last Lord's Day at the wise men's response to the birth of Jesus. And today we're going to consider King Herod's response to the birth of Jesus, uh, which I'm sure you're aware is quite different than that of the wise men and of Joseph. And so we started last week in Matthew 2. We see Herod throughout this chapter. So we looked at verses 1 through 12 last week. We're going to come back to some of those passages. uh, But I want to read for us today uh, verses 13 down through about verse 20. So out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this text for us this Lord's Day. This is what the Holy Spirit says to us through Matthew and his gospel. Speaking of the wise men now, he says in verse 13, Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were under two years old or or who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. If you would pray with me. Father God, we thank you that during the the busyness of this season, during the rush, during all the hustle that that we can come together and worship and we can be reminded that there was a time when your people waited. 
there was a time when they waited with eagerness for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of King Jesus. Pray, I, I pray, Lord, just as your people waited for thousands of years for that first coming and longed for the coming of the Messiah, Lord, I pray that we would long for the return of Christ. And as we prepare for that return, help us to learn from your word today, even as we consider the response of King Herod to the birth of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is a time of year when hey, it's not unusual to see the subject of nativities in public settings as a controversy. Hey, it's not unusual to see a headline about uh, someone protesting that there's a, a nativity at a state capitol, but what is a bit unusual is a headline I read just last week. It said this, Satanic sculpture installed at Illinois State House just in time for the holidays. And the article went on to read this way, in the Illinois Capitol Rotunda this month, several traditions are being celebrated. There's a nativity scene for Christmas, a menorah for Hanukkah, then something a little different. An arm holding an apple with a snake coiled around it. It's a snake-tivity. And it's a gift from the Chicago branch of the Satanic Temple. The statue also has a sign that reads, Knowledge is the greatest gift. Throughout the article, they interview different spokespeople and leaders, and one of them for this group said it this way, The arm represents Eve in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see Satan as the hero in that story, of course, spreading knowledge. You see, to this group, they see the fall not as a fall at all. They see it as an uprising. They see it as an illustration of, of man taking his place over God, over anyone who would tell him how to live. They see this as not man's rebellion, but, but really man's arrival. Man is in charge, not God. Man is in control, not God. Man is the captain of his soul. Man is the master of his own fate. Now this image, this statue there in the Illinois Rotunda, it may be new, but, but, but this display, this, this outward manifestation that says, Man should take his place over God. It is not new at all. It goes all the way back to the fall. There certainly was an uprising in the garden. Adam and Eve disobeyed God in an effort to be like God themselves. And we see that spirit still alive today. We see it throughout biblical history. We see that people don't want to be told what to do. People don't want to be told what to believe. And people certainly don't want to be told that God is sovereign and somehow in control. They pride themselves, so many, on being the masters of their own fate. And yet, listen to what the psalmist says about this in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
See, there's a spirit alive and well in man of rebellion. There's something within us by nature that, that we desire to push back against authority. And we see it from a very early age. I've mentioned before, none of us have to teach our kids how to say no, do we? I was reminded of this just the other day. Uh, we were up in Louisville doing some Christmas shopping, and uh, we were in one of the stores there, and there's a lot of noise, there's hustle and bustle, but as I was looking down one aisle, I couldn't help but just hear this shriekingly loud voice come from just down the aisle from me. No! Mine! And I looked to see if it was Parker or who it was. And, <laughs> and there was this young child sitting in a cart, grasping for dear life onto a toy as his mother was trying to talk him out of it. You know, oh, Johnny, you got to put that back. No, mine! Oh, you know, Johnny. And she was talking in such a way that I thought, Johnny's going to win this one. You know, she just... She, she kept trying, and he just kept defiantly saying, no, mine. Now, I didn't get involved in it. I didn't ask her any questions. But I imagine if I were to ask her, now, tell me, at what point did you teach little Johnny how to say No. <laughs> There had been no response. We, we, we don't teach our children to say no. We teach them to say please and thank you and yes sir and yes ma'am. But it's not just children. It, it rises with us throughout the ages. There, there's something within us. The scripture says our depravity, our sin nature that, that, that pushes back against authority. That pushes back against being told what to do. There is a no that cries out from within us. And what that comes down to so often is we don't want authority. And there's no clearer picture of that in the Scripture than that of King Herod in Matthew chapter 2. King Herod is a man who did not want to have anyone in authority over him. He saw himself as the master of his own destiny. He saw himself as the ultimate, as the supreme. So when these wise men from the east show up, and start asking questions about the king of the Jews, a title that he had actually been assigned when he realizes it's not him that they're looking for, well, he was a bit threatened. Now, we're going to look at King Herod's response here, but in order to understand his response, it's helpful to know a bit about him. Uh, this is who we know historically as Herod the Great. Uh, he had put, been put in place there in power by his Father. His father had been put in power by none other than Julius Caesar himself. He was a ruthless and a cold-hearted ruler. He was extremely paranoid and threatened by anyone who might take his throne or take his power. By the time we arrive to Matthew chapter 2, Herod is near the point of death. He's about 70 years old. But here's just one example from his life to give you a picture of what type of person he was. Herod had ten wives. One of them named, was named Mariomne. And Mariomne had a brother named Aristobulus. And Aristobulus was a Jewish high priest. Aristobulus was quite popular as a priest there in the kingdom, in the region there where Herod ruled. So popular, in fact, that Herod became very threatened by the idea that people might have an affection for or might think more of Aristobulus than they thought of him. Uh, so he arranged for his murder. He had him drowned. 
But of course, he didn't want people to know that he did that. And so he put on one of the largest state funerals that had ever been financed. And there he he faked the tears and he faked the mourning. But he noticed at that funeral, there was someone genuinely mourning. It was his wife whose brother had been killed. It was his mother-in-law whose son had been killed. And as he saw their grief and saw their mourning, he was so enraged that they might think more of that who was dead than they thought of him. So he had them killed as well. Not only that, he had two of his sons killed when he thought they might rise to power over him. Five days before his own death, he had his eldest son killed. The first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote this about Herod and about his rule. He did not permit citizens either to meet together or to walk or to eat together, but watched everything they did. Exhorting them always to be at work, he had spies everywhere. He would often put on the clothing of an ordinary citizen and mix among the multitude at night, asking them what they thought about Herod and his government. When they answered with criticism, they were punished severely or even brought to the citadel where they were put to death. This man was so paranoid and so vain and demanded so much attention that shortly before he died, he had many of those who were rulers and well thought of in the Jewish community in prison on trumped up charges. And this was his command, that on the day that he died, they would be murdered and executed. Why? Because he wanted there to be great mourning and great grieving in the land on the day of his death. Herod was a wicked paranoid ruler which might give you some insight then to his response here to the news that there was a new king to the news that these travelers from the east had come to worship this king of the jews and so i want to take a few moments on this fourth sunday of advent just to consider for a moment how we see herod respond to this news and we'll begin with the first point there in your outline We see that Herod was anxious. Herod was anxious. Look at verse 3. It says that when he initially hears this news, when he hears that there are these travelers looking for the king of the Jews, but it's not him they're looking for, well, his initial response to this is that, hey, he's a bit worried, he's a bit anxious. Why would he be anxious? Well, I think Herod believed his rule was in question. He was the king. There wasn't room for another. There could only be one king. And if there's another there that they're looking for, one who had been born, that perhaps this is someone who would take his throne and take his title. Of course, we know through the Scripture that Jesus had a much greater title that He would be given than the one that King Herod had. Jesus indeed is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. This is the title He has given throughout the Scripture. For example, in Luke chapter 2, we have that picture there where the angel is speaking to the shepherds and the angel says this, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We see Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 that Jesus is the blessed and only Sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we see that vision that the Apostle Paul has there in the book of Revelation where he describes Jesus this way. On his robe and on his thigh, his name was written King of kings and Lord of lords. Herod, I believe, was anxious because Herod perhaps had a better grasp on who Jesus is than many churchgoers do today. 
Hey, he understood this was the king. He understood this was the Lord. And this threatened his rule. See, Herod didn't want Jesus to be the king. And friends, the reality is many of us don't want Jesus to be the king either. Now, we aren't very threatened when we see a picture of a baby in a manger. And many of us aren't even threatened when we see this depiction of Christ on a cross or Christ in a tomb. But when Christ sits on a throne and is sovereign and rules, then we are threatened. Why? Because we want to sit on the throne of our lives. I'm guessing for most of us as adults, we're not sitting in a shopping cart in a place yelling, no mine, but we do it in different ways, don't we? We demand our way, we demand our rights, and when things don't go the way we thought they should go, when this deal doesn't work out the way we thought it would, well, we get a, big, a bit anxious. We get a bit worried. We want to be in charge. We want to be the master of our own destiny. We want to do things our way. I was doing a funeral a number of years ago for a, a man who had passed away, wasn't a part of our church, wasn't a part of any church. And uh, I tried to ask some questions about him, questions to his family, not knowing him, wanted to do my best to help them in their time of grief and mourning. And one of the brothers, as I was talking to him, made reference to the Frank Sinatra song, My Way. He said, you know, this really just, this, this is him, man. This is as if he wrote this song, My Way. Yeah, it's, it's an endearing song. We've heard it. I did it my way. But I just stopped for a moment. I thought, man, I, I wonder if he even knows what that song says. That, that song is about a man who is awaiting death, who's near the end of his life, and this is his declaration before he dies. And now the end is near, so I'll face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full, I've traveled each and every highway, and much more than this, I did it my way. For what is man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows. I did it my way. I did it my way. So do you hear what that's saying? And Sinatra's daughter would actually later write that her father while this was the song people associated with him, he came to hate this song because it was so self-absorbed and so self-indulgent. I wouldn't bow my knee to anyone. I said exactly what I thought. I did things my way. Friends, if that is the testimony of your life, is that, if that is the declaration of your heart, then you need to understand that your way leads to death. Scripture says very clearly there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. That there was a way that Adam and Eve pursued in the garden, and its end was death. There's a way that thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions and even billions have pursued, and its way is death because it is defiant and it is rebellious and it is a way that says, I am king, there is no other. And as we see this pronouncement of a king, we see Herod not only anxious, but point two there in your outline, but we see that he is agitated. His anxiety grows to agitation. He becomes more and more paranoid. In fact, we read there in verse 4 that he's so paranoid that he calls together all the chief priests and everyone who can help him understand exactly what's taking place here. 
Now this was not out of a desire of Herod to go worship Jesus. Although that's what he tells the wise men. No, he wanted to extinguish Jesus. He wanted to do away with any threat to his throne. And so he gathers there together these scribes, these who can tell him about the prophecies, and, and they show him what the Scripture says. They show him the prophecy there that says that Bethlehem is where the Messiah would be born. I think at Herod at this point, as he becomes aware of this, his anxiety grows in agitation because he begins to understand why, that this is in my rule and in my region. This is a threat to my throne. And so he comes up with a plan. He's going to summon these wise men. He's going to send them to go find Jesus in Bethlehem. And he's going to tell them to send word to him so, so he can go worship Jesus also. But the Scripture makes it very clear that his desire was not to worship Jesus at all. It was to murder him. Why? Because he was a threat to his kingdom. And we see it there in verse 6 in that prophecy. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler. A ruler was a king. A ruler was a sovereign. Now this is a bit different for us to consider in our culture. Usually when we think about kings, we think about British royalty, we think about those who really don't have absolute power, have very limited power. Uh, there are some kings in the world today who, who have absolute power. Many are, are tyrants. But that's not the system of government we operate under. So uh, we don't really fully comprehend what's being said here when we read about a ruler or a king. But in this context, in this time, in Herod's day, the king was absolute. That the king was sovereign. The king had absolute power and control. There could only be one king. And not only did Herod demand to be that king, he would not have anyone be ruler over him. He was troubled by this idea of this sovereign king Jesus being raised up. And friends, the reality is many of us are troubled when it comes to this issue as well. Again, baby in a manger, that's fine. Christ on a cross, we're okay. But Christ on a throne, Christ who is sovereign, a God with absolute power and control, well, we push back against this. We don't want someone telling us what we need to do. Now, we like the idea of God being sovereign when we need something. Especially when things are out of our control, when we're at our wit's end, when, when we can't fix it. So often that's when we cry out to God, God, would you do this? So often that's when we lean on God and see God as powerful, when we realize our limits and our lack of power, well, we'll go to God almost like He's just there to do our bidding. And he's kind of our supernatural Santa. He's our, our heavenly grandpa. He's somebody we can just go to and ask for stuff. So if he's just waiting there to do our bidding, and yet the Scripture is clear, friends, we are the ones who are here to do the bidding of God. Now, he is the sovereign. He is the one in control. But this is a hard thing for us to grasp. In fact, it's something that confuses us. It's something that troubles us. I mean, we're okay with God being sovereign when things go good, but what about when things go bad? What about when hard things happen? This is when we wrestle, and I think we should wrestle, 
with the sovereignty of God. But we need to make sure we wrestle with it through the winds of the word of God, not through the winds of a troubled heart, not through trying to logically make sense of things, but to go directly to God's word and see what it says. And this passage shows us that there is a tension in the scripture that exists when we look at God's sovereignty alongside bad things happening and wicked things happening and even alongside that the problem of evil and the evil intentions of man and we see it here in matthew chapter 2 and for example consider how it is that jesus was born in bethlehem in the first place i was talking to someone a skeptic once about the gospel and one of the things we were talking about was all the prophecies that were fulfilled by jesus and now you have all these writings in the old testament from different prophets and now you see the perfect fulfillment of them in christ and and this skeptic said to me well that's easy he said the people you're reading about there in the new testament they knew what the prophecies were so they they just arranged for things to happen in such a way that it would appear the prophecy was being fulfilled for example you see the prophecy here concerning Jesus being born in Bethlehem. So this skeptic's theory was, well, Joseph and Mary hatched this plan to have this child that they would call the Messiah, and they knew the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, so they, they arranged to go to Bethlehem to have Jesus. Well, there's a serious problem with that logic. And it's this, who told Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem? It was Caesar Augustus. Uh, Caesar Augustus, this wicked king, Caesar Augustus was uh, a pagan ruler. Caesar Augustus referred to himself and demanded other people refer to him as the son of God. (laughs) He was by no means a a follower of the Hebrew God. He he was a pagan man. And yet in his power, as he wanted to count his people, he, he gave this decree that ultimately led to Joseph and Mary being there in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. And yet, that fulfilled one of the prophecies. God used a wicked king to fulfill his sovereign plan. And we see it throughout this chapter. For example, consider the wickedness we see of Herod here. Who in his rage has this murderous plot to kill all these children in order to extinguish the threat to his throne. And yet, in doing this, he fulfills the prophecy. A couple of them, as we see here in the Scripture. Out of Egypt I called my son. He see God warns Joseph to, to flee to Egypt to escape Herod's wrath. And then when Herod is dead, he, he brings him back from Egypt. And how do these things take place? Well, they take place through the sovereign hand of God using the, the wicked plans of man for His glory. Man's wickedness, sin, evil, these things don't thwart the sovereign hand of God. There's this tension in the Scripture we see where God is sovereign and God is in control even if we can't fully understand that. But what we can see clearly is that that Herod is clearly anxious. Herod is clearly agitated, which leads to that third point in your outline. Herod's response is that he was angry. He is furious. Joseph is warmed in this dream to flee to Egypt because, quote, Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And when he realizes that the wise men aren't returning to tell him where the child has been born, he's going to send out his own search party there to Bethlehem. This was about six miles south of where he was. They're going to look and they're going to go ahead and just wipe out any male child under the age of two. Not just in Bethlehem, but in that region. He wants the threat to end. And so here we have this picture of a a wicked king slaughtering children 
to preserve his kingdom. Friends, that is not a new idea for the serpent, for the enemy. It's one we see throughout the scripture. And consider what we see at the beginning of the book of Exodus. There God's people are enslaved in Egypt and the Pharaoh starts to see that the Israelites are growing in number. They are outnumbering the Egyptians and they're threatening Pharaoh's power. And so Pharaoh comes up with a plan. He orders the midwives to murder all of the male children when they're born. Why? To preserve his power and to preserve his kingdom. And yet what happens? God raises up a deliverer from those children. One who escapes the Pharaoh's murderous plan. One who rises up and one who ultimately delivers the people of God. It is a foreshadowing of what we see here in Matthew chapter 2. Another wicked king whose power is threatened. Another wicked king who orders the murder, the slaughter of these male children. And another wicked king whose plan is foiled when a deliverer escapes. And this deliverer is the greater Moses. He is the eternal king. He is Jesus Christ. We see no matter what the plans of evil men, God's plans are supreme. We see within this that this anger, that this hatred that's there in Herod. And yet notice Herod's fate beginning there in verse 19. When Joseph has taken Mary and Jesus to Egypt, verse 19 tells us, but when Herod died. He was near the point of death when all this was taking place. Not much time would pass before he would die. And Matthew reminds us twice in these two short verses of his fate. When he died, verse 20, those who sought to kill, take the child's life are dead. Herod sought to preserve his kingdom, but his kingdom was temporal. He wanted to be king and he wanted no one else. And yet we see at the end of his days, he stood before the true king. I mean, consider that scene for a moment. Consider Herod at death standing before the true king. Consider Herod at death bowing his knee before the holy of holies. See, Scripture says this is the fate for us all. Romans chapter 14 beginning in verse 10, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself to God. Herod refused to bow his knee before God this side of eternity. But the day came when he bowed his knee. And according to the scripture, the day remains where he now suffers under the wrath of God. Friends, that is the fate for us all. It is very easy for us, especially this time of year, to become so busy and so preoccupied and running from place to place and checking this list off and this list off and get so hurried and so crazy and spend so much money that we don't actually stop and consider what this season is all about. That we don't stop to consider that we are being reminded of the arrival of the King who is coming back again. And that we don't stop and consider 
what it will be to stand before Him and give an account. The reality is, most of us are more concerned about what a person thinks about our Christmas present than about what God thinks of our life. And the Scripture says, we will stand before Him. And we will give an account in His second advent. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 16, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul that is a picture of Herod before the throne and all of his kingdom (laughs) look what you had and now look at what you have forfeited or what shall a man give in return for his soul for the son of man is coming with his angels in the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done friends are you ready for that day I know many of us, I've mentioned this before, we're, we're accustomed to asking this question. We probably asked it this morning. Are, are you ready for Christmas? Are you ready? But friends, there's a bigger question we need to ask. Are you ready for Christ? Are you ready to stand before Him in judgment? Are you ready to give an account? And the good news from the Scripture is, as you consider what that looks like, if you have repented and trusted in Christ, the Scripture says you are clothed with His righteousness. He speaks on your behalf. He is your advocate. But friends, if you have yet to bow your knee to the throne, if you are unrepentant, if you are demanding to do things your way, then God will allow you to do them your way up to a point. But there'll be a day you stand before God and you have to give an account for your way. And the Scripture gives us no notion that there are scales where the good outweigh the bad. The Scripture says the only comparison there is is our sinful deeds to the utter holiness and righteousness of God. And we all fall short of the glory of God. And our only hope this Advent season, our only hope is to place our trust in Christ as King and as Lord, as our Sovereign, and to walk by faith and trust in Him. We will be challenged. At times we will be confused. We won't fully understand. But the day is coming when He says He will indeed make all things new. And we are to look to Him and trust in Him. Will you do things your way? Or will you do things His way? That is the question for us to consider on this fourth Sunday of Advent. If you would stand together as I pray for us and as we sing and as we consider these very things. Father God, we have seen a picture. We have been warned from Your Word of what it looks like to live life for ourselves of what it looks like to be the king of our own domain, the master of our own destiny. Lord, we have seen it and we know how it will end. And so, Lord, I pray we would heed this morning. I pray for anyone here who is yet to bow their knee to the cross. Anyone who's yet to confess Christ as Lord. Anyone here who who, who has perhaps considered themselves a Christian, perhaps they're faithful to attend this church or another, but but, but they're not living according to Your Word. They're, They're living in disobedience. Lord, I pray that they, that we would repent and would trust in You. 
Lord, I thank you in the hurriedness of this season and the busyness of it in a time when we can be so distracted that you remind us from your word of a day when people were waiting for the arrival of the king and they were longing for it. The wise men traveled for many days, weeks, months to, to, to have the chance to worship Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that, that we can do that right now. That we can worship Him. And thank you, Lord, that as they look towards the first coming, we now look towards the second. I pray we would be ready. I pray we would be prepared. I pray we'll be a people that will be faithful and will trust in You. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.